This week on the show, we cover Linux and FreeBSD firewalls comparison part two, 27 years of the perfect OS or with the perfect OS, the top 20 OpenSSH server best security practices, the huge pfsync rewrite and why that is interesting to you, OpenSMTPD, a new version is out 7.3.0, patch number one, running OpenBSD 7.3 on your laptop and why that is not really hard, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 517, huge PF sync rewrite, recorded on the 3rd of July 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. Hey, we are back. And hopefully this episode finds you well. And we have great news for you uh, in this episode here and there good bits and nuggets uh, but we're also connecting back to a previous article that we had promised to provide part two when it comes out so this one is from clara systems linux and FreeBSD firewalls the ultimate guide and this is part two in the episode we had earlier we recorded part two uh, not part two part one and this one is kind of the continuation and uh you know wrap up of that so they continue where they left off with the firewall comparisons. And here uh, is the second part that covers uh, when it comes to choosing a firewall technology for your operating system, the options can be overwhelming. This is particularly true for Linux and FreeBSD, which offer multiple choices. Uh, so in this article, we'll take a closer look at four of the most popular firewall options for both systems, IP tables, NF tables, IPFW, and PF. Remember those from the first part? Uh, and to help you make an informed decision. So here uh, in the second part, we cover uh, egress filtering and listing those tables and sets, listing rules and view encounters, and a conclusion at the end. Okay, so in the first article, we covered the major differences between the two types of firewall platforms, either Linux or FreeBSD-based, and what the options are. We covered how PF, IPFW, IP tables, and NF tables act when actions are applied to different packages, and in general, the difference between deploying a FreeBSD-based firewall and a Linux-based firewall. Here in the second part, we go a bit deeper and discuss how egress filtering is done, as mentioned, and how tables and sets are built. So egress filtering. For our second example, we'll consider the case of filtering outgoing packets. Okay, so what's to do there. When a firewall rule determines that a particular packet should be blocked, it can either silently drop the packet or it can send an ICMP error response to the sender. If the purpose of your firewall is to protect against malevolent actors, it can be better to simply drop the packet. This avoids revealing information about the structure of your network and reduces the effectiveness of denial of service type attacks. However, if you are filtering outgoing packets from your network, the ICMP errors can allow your software to quickly return an error message instead of waiting until a timeout has elapsed. Okay, so let's suppose we have some software that bypasses the system DNS settings and goes directly to a public name server, and we want to prevent it from doing that. 
So with IP tables, uh, we have the output chain for that. The protocol and port are also included, though you might choose to leave them out and simply block all packets to the destination address. And there's the D option, which allows you to match the destination address. And the reject jump target is an extension rather than a chain. It enables the reject with option to select a specific type of response to send. So uh, the command provided uh, there. You can find that all in the show notes. Uh, NF tables. Uh, the NF, NF tables example needs an appropriately named chain and table combination, assuming those exist. Uh, then there is a fairly similar rule. And IPFW does the following. It has an unreach as an action, so it comes first with the following uh, word part, indicating the type of ICMP error it should throw. So this is something like IPFW add unreach port UDP from any two and then the DNS addresses and then out at the end with 53 as the port. PF, uh, PF, we could set the block policy option to use ICMP returns for all block rules, but here we use a per rule option. For the rule itself, differences are only cosmetic and there is nothing remarkable in the PF example. This one goes block return dash ICMP out proto UDP to the DNS addresses in uh, curlies, and at the end there's port 53. Okay, so with PF, rules are defined in a configuration file etcpf.conf. For IP tables and IPFW, it's common to use a shell script. An advantage of using a shell script is that you can make use of shell features like variables and source command for including other files, and all for firewalls, use a dollar sign for variable references. Okay, so that should be too difficult, uh, switching between the two, at least for that part. Uh, PF supports an include keyword in pfconf to include additional configuration files. And uh, furthermore, as a substitute for shell variables, it supports macros. It's common to use a macro when naming network interfaces. For example, you might define iphase equals bge0, for example. Yeah, so you can use iphase everywhere in your rule set. So rules often allow for a list of variables. So you might define a macro for the TCP port numbers a mail server needs. For example, mail underscore ports equals 25, 110, 143, 165, and 587. So all of these ports are then assigned to mail ports. And whenever you use mail ports, all these uh, five are used in that uh, rule set. Okay. Uh, the same goes with NF tables allowing individual rules to be added from the command line with the NFT command. NFT, oh wow, okay. It also supports a config file. The config files support rules in the same form. They are specified with NFT. I have a whole different association with NFT, but that's something else. Along with include files and variables, for example, define iface equals ENO1. Okay, so that's fairly uh, similar. Uh, let's go to tables and sets. When matching many IP addresses in a firewall rule, it would be clumsy to need to list many different addresses. Linux has a feature named IP sets for maintaining lists of network addresses and port numbers. This allows firewall rules to target just the name of the set. In addition to being more flexible and allowing for dynamic ranges, sets also facilitate much more efficient implementations of address matching for lists containing many addresses. IP sets are common to both IP tables and NF tables, and the sets can be manipulated using the IP set utility. Both IPFW and PF have their own separate concept of tables for maintaining large sets of network addresses or values of other types to be referenced from firewall rules. These serve the same purpose as IP sets and have the same benefits. 
So tools like SSH guard and fail to ban, which detect brute force attacks by watching log files, use these address tables to block offending hosts. Previously includes blacklist D in PACE, which does likewise. Okay, so they have a table here that uh, show comparison between listing the rules, showing the counters and the zero counters. So you can kind of uh, see which commands are used where and how similar they are. In conclusion, by covering four separate firewalls, we've only been able to scratch the surface of the capabilities. They are all highly versatile and can be adapted to a variety of needs. On the four, IP tables has the least clear syntax, but is easy to learn and use. NF tables clearly improves on it, but can appear overwhelmingly initially. Wait, one more time. Uh, of course, of the four, IP tables has the least clear syntax, but is easy to learn and use. NF tables clearly improve. NF tables clearly improves on it, but can appear overwhelming initially. It is, incurs some complexity from the legacy of its predecessors, both IP tables and even the earlier IP chains, as many concepts were carried forward. With a grasp of NF tables' basic concept, it's not hard to use, and the benefits of its design show. IPFW's documentation is easy to follow, and it manages to be simple without compromising on capability but there are areas where it shows its age. PF probably has the clearest rule syntax and feels like a clean, modern design. They provide a couple of links for each firewall's handbooks or man pages. So if you want to dig in deeper, start there. Excellent. Yeah, um, I'm pretty uh, biased uh, with PF. I'm a bit of a, a PF fan. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, the mention of tables earlier in um, that post, um, there is some performance benefits by using tables rather than having um, a variable or macro set IP address ranges. Uh, so uh, yeah, use uh, uh, tables um, in PF if you can. Mm. Yeah, and it's not like you're changing your firewall every week. So you use one and that for a long time, ideally. So you are kind of flexing your uh, syntax muscles there and don't uh, look at others for a while. Muscle memory, yep. <laughs> Moving on, uh, 27 years with the perfect OS. If you're a long-time FreeBSD user, you probably know everything I have to say. And what's more, you can probably add a few points. But hopefully there will be some Linux or even Windows users among readers who might learn something new. FreeBSD is not just a kernel, but a complete operating system. It has everything to boot and use the system. It has network utilities, text editors, development tools, and more. Why is that a big deal? Well, because all these components are developed together. They work perfectly together. And a well-polished system is also easier to document. One of my favorite pieces of documentation is the FreeBSD handbook which covers most of the operating system and is, most of the time, up to date. Of course, not everything can be integrated into the base operating system, and this is where FreeBSD ports and packages can be useful. The port system allows a clean separation of the base system and third-party software, which allows you to install third-party software on top of a FreeBSD base system. There are tens of thousands ready-to-use software packages to choose from. For example, all the graphical desktop applications are in ports, just as various web servers or more up-to-date development tools. And the post goes into, it's got the uh, FreeBSD power to serve, 
um, banner. I remember that banner from probably the 90s, I think, uh, that banner was around. Um, but, uh, yeah, FreeBSD, the power to serve. So the rest of this article actually can be found in the FreeBSD journal. And in the show notes, you'll see the, the link to the blog post, which has got the link to the uh, FreeBSD Foundation publication. So go and check it out. Yeah. Ah, I never thought we could link directly to certain pages in the FreeBSD journal. So I probably will make use of that in the future. <laughs> so to kind of point to a specific one we want to cover. Okay, very nice. So news roundup. Uh, we have found top 20 OpenSSH server best security practices. So that's a good way for anyone running some kind of server that is <laughs> accessible by OpenSSH and who has not used OpenSSH on the server side. Um, at least in this audience, I'm fairly sure there are many of them. So this is over at cybercity.biz. And uh, they start with OpenSSH is the implementation of the SSH protocol. OpenSSH is recommended for remote login, making backups, remote file transfer via SCP or SFTP, and much more. SSH is perfect to keep confidentiality and integrity for data exchanged between two networks and systems. However, the main advantage is server authentication through the use of public key cryptography. And from time to time, there are rumors about OpenSSH zero-day exploits. Uh, this page shows how to secure your OpenSSH server running on a Linux or Unix-like system to improve SSHD security. So these are pretty much universal. So if you have OpenSSH, whatever system you have, you should uh, implement many, if not all, of these uh, security requirements. So by default, OpenSSH is quite good in the setup. Uh, depending on which distro you have or what the distros uh, put in to the extra OpenSSH defaults, but it's never uh, a bad idea to check these or add some extra security parts. So the first is use SSH public key-based login, of course. OpenSSH server supports various authentications. It is recommended that you use public key-based authentication. First, create a key pair using following SSH keygen on your local desktop and laptop. They have a note here that DSA and RSA 1024 bits or lower SSH keys are considered weak. Avoid them. And RSA keys are chosen over ECD SA keys when backward compatibility is a concern with SSH clients, so older ones. And all SSH keys are either ED25519 or RSA. Do not use any other type. So here they provide the commands to enter when you want to create a new key pair. So you provide SSH key gen dash T the key type, in this case ED25519. Then dash B for the bits, they chose 1496. That's quite big and secure based on our knowledge here. <laughs> and dash capital C is also good. If you have many keys, you don't have to wonder, hmm, what was this key for? When did I created that? So provide a comment to yourself and thank us later. So uh, that gives you the key and it asks you for a passphrase, which you should ideally create. Or if you don't want a passphrase, then just type enter. And then you have two new files, a .pub and a non.pub. And uh, this, these represent your uh, public and private keys. Uh, then you can use the public key uh, using the SSH copy ID command to copy it to the remote server. And that is SSH copy ID dash lowercase i with a path to your public key file. Don't use the private key file there. 
I think SSH copy ID is now checking that uh, in some way. So yeah, don't copy the wrong key. That's not making it more secure. Always use the public key. Uh, and then provide the user and the host where you want to log in. So when, uh, then you're prompted, of course, for one last time to use the uh, uh, password on, your, on the server to kind of authenticate that you are who you say you are. And then you uh, load that key into memory. They kind of missed that here uh, somehow. Uh, anyway, so you log into that server and then ideally your key is used instead of the please enter password prompt. Okay, number two, disable the root user login. Uh, before we disable the root user login, make sure a regular user can log in as root or you locked yourself out and that no one can access that server. Very secure, but not very usable. For example, allow uh, the user vivek user to log in as root using the sudo command. So they create a, a user on the local machine, uh, whatever uh, you want to name it. And then you add that user to the sudo group on, on Unix, uh, the Linux systems that have such a group. And that is just to make sure that this user can log, that user can log in. And then you edit your sshd config file, usually located in etc sshd and then slash sshd underscore config. That is the server configuration file. And there you check the options permit root login. That should be set to no. The challenge response authentication should also be set to no. Password authentication set to no. And use PAM no, unless you use PAM to log in like in a um, corporate environment where you have like LDAP-based logins via PAM. Okay, number three, uh, disable password-based logins. So all password-based logins must be disabled now that you have public keys, right? And that is done using the authentication methods, public key settings and pubkey authentication. And that is set to yes. That's still in your SSHD config file. Okay, number four, limit users SSH access. So you can say only certain users should be allowed into the server no matter what. And that is using the line allow users and then you list the users with spaces between them. Uh, so the user accounts listed there are the only ones that are allowed. Even if the password is correct, they provide. If they're not in this allowed users list, then they cannot get in. And there's also a deny users group. There's also a allow groups and deny groups. So they have different uh, preferences there in which order they are processed. Uh, you can find these in, for example, OpenSSH Mastery by Michael W. Lucas. That's a great book to get started with SSH. And these are described in there. So number five, disable empty passwords. Ah, oh, well, easy enough. Uh, there's an option, permit empty passwords set to no. And that should be the default, but check this. If it isn't, then uh, by all means set this. Uh, each time you make changes to the OpenSSH deconfig file, um, do a, uh, there should be a config test option in your uh, service definition. When you restart the service, it should check the uh, syntax of this file. Uh, if that's wrong, then you kind of stop the service and it cannot start it because the syntax has an error and the server doesn't start anymore. So there's this config test option that uh, checks that before it starts uh, the service again. Okay, number six. Use strong passwords and passphrase for SSH users and keys. The passphrase I mentioned earlier, but they provide here a nice shell uh, function 
doesn't have is there anything oh yeah there's a couple bash rc bash things in there but it should be able to work with other shells uh with a little bit of a rewrite uh a gen pass wd so that creates you a nice uh 16 or depending on how long you want to have your passwords uh you can pass a number and then that password length is generated using random uh, def u random and that provides you an, an output f uh, string with uh, words and characters or yes, characters and numbers um, that is your new password or that you could use as your new password. Number seven, firewall SSH TCP port 22. Um, they say you need to firewall SSH TCP port number 22 by updating IP tables UFW firewall command or the firewalls you mentioned earlier in this episode, right? Uh, usually, OpenSSH server must only accept connections from your uh, local area network or the remote wireless uh, or wide area network sites. Yeah, that's a bit disputed. If that, if you're on a private server somewhere that only has this port available, then this trick is kind of well. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. Let's go to number uh, eight. Change the SSH port and limit IP binding. Yeah, um, same here. If you think that by setting the port to something else and people won't find it, and just scan uh, port 22, then scripts are smart enough these days to check all the open SSH ports, no matter what's, whether that's port 22 or port 2222 or whatever. So be careful. Uh, that's uh, a bit of a thing that won't make you more secure uh setting the listen address may uh be more helpful there because ssh by default binds to any uh ssh port or to any interface more like that is uh, available and by providing the listen address option and setting the ip address of your server there allows only the ssh to listen on that particular address you can also provide multiple ones if the server is reachable by multiple addresses but only those that you define are then listened on Number nine, use TCP wrappers. These are optional. Oh, okay. Uh, these are host-based uh, networking ACL system to filter network access to the internet. Okay. Um, let's go to 10. Uh, thwart SSH crackers and brute force attacks by using a certain software that checks how many uh, you know, connections are being there in a certain interval. So there's deny hosts, fail to ban, SSH guard, security SSH block, and IPQ BDB filters. So these are linked from the article and you can uh, research them on your own. There's also rate limiting incoming TCP traffic on uh, port 22 as number 11. So you can say, oh, I only allow um, five connections within a 60 second window. No one else is fast enough to uh, log in that quickly or shouldn't be. So this must be some kind of script or bot that tries logging in. And you can automatically block those if people exceed that limit. Number 12, use port knocking. Yeah, that is also a bit disputed in security circles, but the port knocking makes things more secure. Uh, but it's listed here, I guess, for completeness sake and the setup to do that. Number 13 is configure idle lockout timeout intervals. So you can say client alive interval 300. That will lock out the session after five minutes uh, idle time. So if you walk away from your computer and you leave your SSH uh, connection open and after five uh, minutes in this case uh, it will lock you automatically out setting uh, also the client alive count max to zero you can also lower that interval if you like so it locks you out uh, earlier 
Number 14, enable a warning banner for SSH users. Yes, uh, so if your company has some kind of security banner that it wants to provide warning people that communications are locked and all these things, uh, you can provide that. There's a separate file etc issues that you can reference from your config file. Number 15, disable the R host files. These are just backwards uh, uh, compatibility files that were used when we were still on RSH commands, which no one should use these days. So you can say ignore R host to yes. Uh, number 16 has you disable host-based authentication. So that's host-based authentication no to disable that and don't get uh, a warning message about those. Number 17, good security practice, patch open SSH and operating systems. Any updates should be applied, especially to these critical login based uh, authentication systems. Number 18 is change root open SSH, lock it into a directory. For example, each user should only be able to get into their home directory and nowhere else. Number 19 is disable open SSH server on the client computer, because if you're only con making connections to the outside world, but don't run your own server, uh, you don't need to run the open SSH server part. So there's ways described uh, how to uh, do that. And OpenSSH uh, or SSH itself will just fine without the S server parts. You can still connect to other machines. And number 20, bonus tips from Mozilla. Okay, they provide a couple of extra settings to make, uh, oh, to lock down uh, certain ciphers or algorithms that you can uh, use that are, you know, secure or believed to be secure. And they provide ways to set those or query what kind of servers a uh, system has available. Okay, that's pretty much it. It's a long list, and each one has the required, uh, you know, settings and things you need to enter to make these or to apply those settings. I guess many of these will be already there on good distributions that take care of security. Yeah, it's a, it was a good document. Uh, it, it, it's well laid out. You did. Uh... Um, give uh, Michael a good plug there. He's uh, got a book that actually delves into this uh, in more detail, so highly suggest uh, going to check that out. Um, there was a couple in there that, you know, uh, really critical ones if you've got SSH that's listening in the internet. Um, uh, a couple of, you know, highlights are the rate limits, so make sure you uh, use your firewalling if the facilities are available to rate limit that down. Um, changing your port Security by obscurity is not security, so there's no no reason to change the port. You're better right. off locking down the IP address that's listening um, to only allow uh, authorized hosts on your networks to have SSH access to your um, SSH instance. And the most, touching on the Mozilla uh, bit, uh, I noticed that they put in the more modern ciphers and remove the old uh, deprecate. Well, they're not deprecated. They're just industry ciphers. And there might be requirements around FIPS or whatever to have some of those older ciphers uh, still running. Uh, however, if you're not under any of those certifications, you need to sort of tick, tick the box, then uh, by all means, remove them and uh, replace them with the more modern ciphers like elliptic curve, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, and the clients still need to be able to connect those because the client also needs to have those ciphers because otherwise they will not be able to authenticate properly with the with the server. Hopefully everybody's using FreeBSD or OpenBSD or any of the BSDs <laughs> with a modern release of OpenSSH and there will be no issue. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, moving right along, uh, over on the OpenBSD tech mailing list, uh, David Gwen has uh, put a post up which has got a huge PFSync rewrite patch. Uh, so quoting what he wrote in the email, moving PF board has been a real struggle and PFSync has been a constant source of pain. We have been papering over the problems for a while now, but it has reached the point that it needed a fundamental restructure, which is what this diff is about. I started rewriting PFSync again during uh, the H2022 last year. Uh, that's the hacking conference that OpenBSD has uh, during the year. They have multiple, multiple hacking events, as um, we've previously reported on uh, in earlier episodes. And it's only been in the last couple of months that I've got all the existing functionality working again. And it's only been the last three weeks in particular that has been solid. This is the first time since about OpenBSD 6.9 that I've been able to upgrade my production firewalls without them falling over. Unfortunately, the diff is very big. We have tried to evolve it and slowing, slowingly improve the locking in PFSync and PF, but because how twisted together they are, we have often caused more problems than we've solved. The big headliner changes in this diff are PF-specific locks. This is the whole reason for the diff. Rather than rely on net lock and kernel lock or whatever, PFSync now has its own locks to protect its internal data structures. This is important because PFSync runs a bunch of timeouts and tasks to push PFSync packets out onto the wire or when it's handling requests generated by incoming PFSync packets, both of which happen outside PF itself running. Having PFSync specific locks around PFSync data structures make the mutations of these data structures a lot more explicit and auditable. Partitioning. To enable future parallelism of the network stack, this rewrite includes support for PFSync to partition states into different slices. These slices run independently, i.e. the states collected by one slice are serialized into the separate packet to the states collected and serialized by another slice. States are mapped to PFSync slices based on the PF state hash, which is the same hash that the rest of the network stack and multi-queue hardware uses. No PFSync call from NetISR. PFSync used to call the NetISR to try and bundle packets, but now that there's multiple PFSync slices, this doesn't make sense. Instead, it uses tasks in softnet TQS. Improved bulk transfer handling. There's shiny new state machines around both the bulk transmit and receive handling. PFSync used to do horrible things to carp demotion counters, but now it is very predictable and returns the counters back to where they started. Better TDB handling. The TDB handling was pretty hairy, but Hove has kicked this around a lot with IPsec and SaySyncD and we've found and fixed a bunch of issues as a result of that testing. MPSafe, PFState purges. This was committed previously, but because the locks PFSync relied on weren't clear enough, this just caused a ton of bugs. As part of this diff, it's now reliable and moves a big chunk of work out from under kernel lock, which in turn improves the responsiveness and throughput of a firewall. There's a bunch of other little changes along the way, but we're above the big ones. 
Povey has done performance testing with his diff and notes a big improvement with PFSync is not in use. Performance when PFSync is enabled is about the same, but I'm hoping the slices mean we can scale along with PF as it improves. If you want PF and the network stack performance to improve, can you please test this diff and let me know how it goes? And the diff is attached to the mail, uh, which is in the show notes. David's mentioned um, off list that uh, the performance improvements are quite significant, uh, be it um, even if you don't use PFSync. Uh, this, a, lot of the, a lot of the changes have got significant improvements. So um, as he's mentioned, uh, please grab if you've got the ability to uh, test in production or near, near production um, and uh, heavy workloads, uh, take the patches and uh, patch up current and uh, give it a test because uh, this will no doubt benefit a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great that they're making it faster, better locking, and yeah, overall easier to handle. And when the code gets an untangled mess, then uh, rewrites are sometimes unavoidable. Great. Uh, we stay with OpenBSD and related projects. This is OpenSMTPD, uh, new version 7.3.0p1 has been released. And the uh, announcement message goes, Hello, an issue with LibreSSL Portable may cause a crash or failure during the TLS handshake. It was reported. I've rolled a, a minor release that fixes it and addresses some minor portability issues. So the change log here is at missing include for standard IO for uh, fparse ln on FreeBSD. Fix a typo in the configure. Use fatal instead of error in xclose from. Don't add lcrypt dash uh, lssl thrice. Yeah, better not. Uh, fix the build of the bundle libtls with libssl. Force the use of the bundle libtls and libasr. Append and not prepend to libs during automatic configuration. Do not add the user local lib or l user local lib, nor uh, include user local include uh, or user include as consequences of missing uh, dash dash with lib event. Optionally, with uh, link libbsd ctor2. So there's uh, the binary and tad uh, links, so you can get those as tarballs and uh, GitHub links. The reason to always use the two bundle libraries is libasr is long deprecated, use uh, only the bundled copy is maintained, and libtls and opensmtpd have a close relationship and need to stay in sync, at least until the signer APIs are restored. Okay, good to know. Get upgrading and testing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on, uh, we've got a blog post by Keith. Um, this is around running OpenBSD 7.3 on your laptop is really hard. Not. Uh, so following the steps in this page to install OpenBSD 7.3 and configure an XFCE desktop and Firefox on a laptop, I used the ThinkPad L440 Intel graphics and 8GB of RAM with legacy BIOS enabled. I used the AMD64 version of the install.image image file. It is best to avoid laptops with NVIDIA-based graphics with OpenBSD. Each section of this guide links to the appropriate section of the OpenBSD FAQ and the relevant man pages. I hope that the resulting tour around the documentation will help you explore OpenBSD in more detail on your own. Remember to read the man after boot before working through the later steps. I'm assuming that you have installed a Linux distribution before and are familiar with the command line. 
you will need to edit configuration files in some of the steps. I'm also assuming that you can dedicate a laptop solely for OpenBSD's use. I used an old refurbished ThinkPad. Install OpenBSD using FAQ. So he's got a link to the OpenBSD FAQ installation guide. I highly recommend checking that out before any installations of any new versions because it changes from release to release. Check that your laptop's video adapter and Wi-Fi card are supported in the pre-installation checklist. My ThinkPad L440 has the support of video but needs firmware for the Wi-Fi card. Use DD on Linux to write the install.image file to a USB stick. Before starting the installation, you need to think up a root password, a username for your user, a password for your user, a host name for your laptop. I use the default name Foo in the examples below. Then boot, the, boot from the USB stick, answer the questions that the text mode installer asks. The installer script shows defaults in square brackets after some of the questions. I identified SDO as the root disks for the installation. I choose no for the encrypted root disks. Questions for this is for the first install. Use the whole disk MBR or GPT whole disk drive for OpenBSD and accept automatic partitioning. I tried GPT this time and it worked fine. You need to select non-default options at four stages in installation. Answer yes to the question about X Windows system being started by Xenodom. In the section, let's install the sets, you have to specify that the sets are located on disk. No, the disk is not mounted. Then type the label of the USB stick, probably SD1. You need to answer yes to the questions about the missing SHA-256 SIG file. See the FAQ about the reason. You need to type in your time zone. The default is Canada Mountain, so I had to type Europe London. Reboot into the graphical login screen and type your username and password. Prepare to visit 2001. So he talks about uh, an, an alternate install with an encrypted hard drive. So I'll let you go and view the post for that. Um, then the talks about the default graphical session is with FVWM. Uh, so it talks a little bit more about uh, just the standard X term uh, turning on um, uh, different things like the command X set uh, to silence beeps, uh, how to read the mail, and uh, look at the afterboot man page. Uh, he talks more about the configuration files, uh, how to do that, and then connecting the wired network. Uh, he's got the link to the FAQ networking component, which tells you how to do the wired Ethernet one, and then Further on to get the Wi-Fi up and running, um, he talks more about the install any firmware and update the base system ready for first use. Uh, connect to home Wi-Fi. So there's the link to the wireless networking uh, FAQ. Uh, you can connect to Wi-Fi in two ways, using IF config line as root or setting up a hostname IF file to connect at boot up. Using a etc hostname.if file makes sense for a home connection. You create the file as root. The ThinkPad L440 uses the IWM Wi-Fi driver, so the hostname.iwm0 file looks like this. And then he's got an example of what it looks like, uh, referring to uh, filling out the Wi-Fi name and the WPA key, 
and then it probes using DHCPleased uh, the autoconf to get an IP address from the network's DHCP server and then use etc net start as root to start up the connection for the first time because hostname.iwm contains your Wi-Fi password, OpenBSD sets it to 640 permissions. Uh, it does that for all network files um, if you've uh, got the incorrect permissions that startup script will always correct the file with permissions for your host adapters. Install software addition to OpenBSD based packages. OpenBSD FAQ to package management is mentioned here and also links to the relevant uh, man pages, package add, package delete, package info and uh, install URL. Uh, so he runs through the installation of adding W3M, um, which is basically a meta package, which will pull in all the uh, prerequisites for uh, W3M. Um, down to power, power management, the man page for APMD. Uh, so OpenBSD uses the APMD daemon to provide automatic frequency scaling to save your battery and reduce power. OpenBSD uses the APMD daemon to provide automatic frequency scaling to save battery and reduce processor temperatures. From OpenBSD 7.1, the behavior of the automatic APMD minus capital A setting when on mains power has changed. You install the OBSD FREQD package to provide fan and CPU speed controls instead. Demons are enabled and started and stopped using the RCCTL command as root. The command writes lines to the etcrc.conf.local file. Install the OBSD FREQD from packages. So it's got a list, uh, an example there of doing the package add, and then a further example of uh, enabling APMD and the OBSD FREQD daemons uh, in the RCT, RCCTL enabler. Moving on to user using mounting of external drives, so uh, where you need to load uh, external drives like USB sticks or camera uh, devices. Uh, he's got a, a good example there of uh, doing USB mounting uh, for those uh, specific uh, XFAT and uh, NTFS uh, file systems. Uh, then there's some more customization around shutdown and reboot uh, to allow regular users to do that and increase the memory limits for programs. So for example, we know that web browsers are quite memory intensive. Uh, they will typically fall over uh, with the standard login.conf uh, profiles. So he's got an example there of uh, increasing the memory size uh, for uh, the regular users that log on to the system. Moves forwards through to some more customized setups for X11. Uh, some talks a little bit about the desktop software that's available in the packages or ports tree. And then goes down to like he talks a bit more about xfc4 and the panel applet um, and how to customize that to be able to make it simple to and fi finally summing up the document uh, he goes into the xfc4 mount um, profile uh, that can be added to the panel in uh, xfc4 
to help mount and unmount uh, USB sticks and devices. So it's quite a comprehensive page that he's developed there. It and it looks like it's being maintained. He started off at 7.2 and he's migrated to 7.3. So he's keeping that history going um, of the of the page. So uh, no doubt it will be organic and move with the different versions. But as he did mention early in the page to always look at the FAQ for the most up-to-date information as you're going along. Yep, good practices all around. And something quick at the end. Sorry, I had to do that. <laughs> uh, this one is quick SSH. So as you might have guessed, uh, this is a repo on GitHub about quick SSH. And quick SSH is a quick proxy that allows you to use the quick protocol to connect to an SSH server without needing to patch the client or the server. So it stands there as a proxy. So typically you have a direct connection or yeah, also indirect connections, but let's keep it uh, simple here. Uh, you have a standard SSH connection from one server to the other. By the way, nice Wargames reference here. This uh, <laughs> The server is called Whopper, and you connect using TCP to that one, to the SSHD uh, daemon from the client machine. And with the SSH quick, you have a proxy in between those with a proxy command where you do quick SSH client uh, to that address. That in turn does quick SSH client to that Whopper address on 4,545. That gets out on UDP because quick, uh, that connects to quick SSH server on on the Whopper server, which in turn does TCP to the localhost on port 22, which reaches the original SSHD server. So that way you can use quick protocol uh, using UDP and newer internet standards that are being developed. They provide also the usage and a couple options that you can set and try that out. It's certainly an interesting way. That would be something for Tom to investigate because of his uh, quick talks that he gave at conferences this year, uh, even at last at Vienna and Europe EastCon. So that might be something interesting. And as quick matures and becomes more available, maybe, then this might be a... Yeah, new way of connecting to servers using SSH. All right, uh, that I think is everything that we have for you this week. Uh, no feedback and questions, but definitely send us more of those. We have some, a few, uh, or actually a couple of them in the back burner, and people keep sending them uh, to feedback at bsdnow.tv. So stay tuned for future episodes where we cover them and the answers uh, will be coming as well. So uh, anything else from you, Jason? No, it's been All a right. uh, been a solid week. What's happening? <laughs> yeah, it was. All right, then let's see what the next week brings. Have a good week, everyone, and till next time. Bye. <laughs>